What was the most important thing to you when you were about 15? Was it studying for exams? Was it your sports team? Was it your friends? Was it boys or girls? Were all your worries, issues and ambitions the same as everybody else's? Were you the same as everybody else? Your own quirks and identity, but still just another cog in the wheel moving towards adulthood. An adulthood you looked forward to, just like your peers. The unimaginative future where you meet someone, buy a house, sell your daylight hours to a company and ponder at what you might do if you had the time to do it, if you had the lack of responsibility to do it. It sounds boring when you list it out like that. But boring is safe. Boring is reliable. Boring is the difference between the stress of reading an email wrong and losing your home due to adventure. What if, at the age of 15, however, you did not have the opportunity to focus your gears towards a safe life? What if, at the age of 15, instead of focusing on exams, sports teams, friends, boys, girls, or all the other things we deem so important at that age, what if instead of all that, your focus was on survival, and only survival? This was the case for a lost Irishman born in New York City. This is his story. In 1859, in New York City, a child was born. His name was Henry McCarthy. His parents were two off-the-boat refugees in America, hoping for a chance at life after struggling through the horrors of the genocide years in Ireland. They were Catherine and Patrick McCarthy. Their relationship didn't last very long, but it was long enough for them to bring Henry and his brother Joseph into the world. Henry and Joseph spent the first few years of their lives struggling for food as they navigated life in the Irish slums of New York City, an area known as the Five Points. In the first six years of his life, Henry lived in a square mile area with 300,000 other people. Due to society's view towards them at the time, the Irish were only allowed to rent the worst of the worst housing available, and Henry would have grown up in a 20 by 20 room with about 20 other people, some of whom he would not know. Henry and Joseph were lucky to survive the conditions of the Irish slum, as child mortality at the time for Irish children in New York was at 25%. Disease nested in the homes and spread like wildfire through the Irish society. Outside of his poverty-stricken home, Henry also had to deal with the tough streets of New York. 
violent fights on the streets by the drunk Irish were a regular sight. Drunk not out of want, but a necessity to forget. After the breakdown of the relationship between his parents, aged six, with his mother and brother, Henry moved to Indianapolis. After some time there, his mother met a man called William Henry Harrison Antrim. He took on the responsibility of raising Henry and Joseph with their mother, and together they all soon moved to Wichita, Kansas, where William had a better chance of finding secure work. Catherine ran her own laundry business, and together with William's work, they earned enough to buy some land near the town. On this land, William built a cabin for the family to live in. William was a strict and stern man, and given his Ulster Scots background, he insisted that Catherine change her religion from Catholic to Presbyterian so that they could marry. The trade-off being he would then become the stepfather to her two boys. The two boys were also pushed into changing their names from McCarthy to Antrim. Soon after the wedding, the family moved to Silver City in New Mexico. They moved there to start a new life, a prosperous life, a life of peace, and a life which justified the move from Ireland. This is not what they found. Soon after they arrived to their new home, Henry's mother became ill with tuberculosis and she passed on to the land of the angels. It was her illness that forced the family to move from the home they had built. It was believed at the time that dry weather could cure tuberculosis. William was left with two sons unrelated to him, associated with him by name only. A name he had forced upon the two boys. William left. He abandoned Henry and Joseph aged 14 and 10. Before he left, he placed the two boys into separate foster homes. Henry was sent to live and work with a woman called Sarah Brown. Sarah was the owner of a boarding house and gave Henry a place to stay and meals to eat in exchange for work in her business. Henry mainly washed the dishes and waited tables. Henry also insisted that he go to school when he wasn't working, as he saw it as an opportunity to get a better job later in life and turn his fortunes around. Life was tough for Henry, but despite the hardship he was living through after the death of his mother, he was attempting to make a real go at life and to ensure her journey to America was worth it. On the anniversary of his mother's death, 
12 months to the day, Henry made the first in a series of decisions that would alter his future forever. Rebelling against his circumstances and wanting more from life, Henry was caught stealing food from a local business. He got off with a warning. A few weeks later, Henry and a friend called George got the idea to steal clothes from a Chinese laundry so they could be better presented and highlight their poverty to others. They were caught and arrested. The main reason for their arrest, as they stole the clothes, they found two guns in the laundry which they thought would be a good idea to take. The local sheriff understood Henry's life situation and instead of fully punishing him, he decided to let Henry think about what he had done and where his life might go by placing him in a holding cell for a couple of days. On the second day in the cell, Henry decided he was not going to be held any longer and he escaped handcuffed by climbing out through the chimney. He spent the next few days wandering aimlessly under the hot sun until he started to track down his stepfather. William let Henry stay just one night, fed him and then kicked him out again. As he left, Henry stole some clothes and a gun. With no family, no home and registered as a fugitive, Henry was on the run. Living in the West on his own, aged just 15, Henry was in one of the most dangerous situations anybody could have found themselves in. Everything from the sun in the sky to the creatures of the earth posed a risk to his life. The lack of law enforcement also made his head fair game for either a bounty hunter or a bored man with a gun. Henry's legs carried him to southeastern Arizona, where he managed to pick up work as a ranch hand, hiding his identity. In the daytime, Henry spent his time working hard to earn a living. In the evening, he gambled it all away in bars and taverns. It was in one of these bars he got to know a man called Henry Hooker. Hooker was a well-established and one of the wealthiest ranchers around the area. Henry convinced him to give him a job and Hooker agreed. It was a great step up as this was seen as a proper business at the time. Whilst working for Hooker, Henry became friendly with a man called John Mackey, a Scottish man who was also a criminal on the run and a former US Army cavalry private. Henry was amazed that John never seemed to be out of pocket despite all the drinking and gambling they were doing. They were on similar wages, but John's money seemed to stretch a bit further than Henry's. 
Henry was making some extra money by translating for the Irish immigrants in the area who only spoke Irish to help them find jobs and roofs, but the Irish refugees far from home didn't arrive with a lot to spend. When Henry did ask John about his finances, John confessed that he was stealing horses from local soldiers when they came into town and selling them on. He explained that as the army rested their horses, he would steal them, sell them on for a discounted price and everybody would be happy, apart from the soldier or the army. Henry asked John if he could join him to make a bit extra and John agreed. At this point in Henry's development, he was quite childlike in appearance. He was a slight build, didn't grow much facial hair and his skin hadn't aged despite its weathering under the sun. It was for these reasons and his poverty that some people used to pick on Henry as he drank and gambled. It was on a hot August night in 1877 when Henry bumped into a local blacksmith called Francis Cahill. Francis was giving Henry hassle about his appearance and Henry decided enough was enough. When Francis started calling Henry names, Henry reacted and Francis took issue with this. How dare a little boy challenge this great big blacksmith. He grabbed Henry by the throat and threw him to the floor. Henry got back up and threw a punch. The two tangled and got wrapped around each other, throwing punches whenever they could get their arms free. After some cheap digs, the two tripped over a chair and fell onto the floor. Francis was on top of Henry and began hitting him in the face. Henry tried pushing Francis's fists away, but he was a much bigger man in a much better position. Henry's eyes began to swell and between the blurred vision from the punches and the blood pouring into his eye sockets, he started to lose sight of Francis. As he waved his arms, trying his best to defend himself, his hand landed on the handle of Francis's pistol. In an act of defence and in panic, Henry pulled the gun from Francis's side and shot him through the chest. Francis slumped forward and lay motionless on Henry, bleeding heavily onto him. Henry took a moment to let the shock of the moment settle and he realised he was now in real trouble. He squirmed out from under Francis and began running. With nowhere to go and no one to protect him, he just kept running. He was spotted in a nearby town a few days later by Miles Wood and he was detained in the local army camp. 
They held him in a cell for a few hours until the sheriff arrived. When he did arrive, they opened the cell to find Henry had in fact been gone for some time. When nobody was looking, he had just made off. He stole a horse and fled for New Mexico. After hours of galloping away, Henry spotted a group of Apaches who had spotted him too. They set off after Henry and caught up. Henry pleaded for his life, but it wasn't him they were after, it was the horse. They took the horse and left him on foot to continue his journey. He arrived to Fort Stanton and with his Irish skin nearly burnt off by the sun, his belly completely empty and seriously dehydrated, Henry was near death's door. He sought out an old friend from the ranch, a man named John Jones. John and his mother Barbara nursed Henry back to health. After his recovery, Henry joined John's gang as they raided cattle herds and stole horses. On the run again, and with a bigger criminal record than before, Henry had little choice but to seek the protection of outlaw gangs. These gangs were made up of men in similar situations, but collectively could somewhat protect each other from the law. On the side of his criminal activities, Henry also worked for a rancher called John Henry Tunstall, an Englishman. Tunstall had managed to smooth over some of Henry's issues with the law on the condition that he would work for him. Tunstall found that this was a great way to get staff to a place not many wanted to go. He had in fact agreed to drop charges against Henry for trying to steal his livestock on the grounds that he would come to work for him on his ranch. Henry by now was living under false names to disassociate himself from his earlier troubles. Tunstall's offer gave Henry a chance at living a straight life through honest means, which Henry was conscious of and appreciated. He was also a wealthy local businessman who, with his business partner, Alexander McSween, were opposing a new alliance of Irish-American businessmen. These Irishmen were Lawrence Murphy, James Dolan and John Riley. Tensions grew between the Irishmen and Henry's boss over territory and who owned what or who managed what areas. Henry, who had grown quite close to Tunstall, stood firmly by his boss's side in the dispute. Both groups were doing whatever it took to undermine the other whenever they could. In 1878, Tunstall owed James Dolan $8,000. In order to have it paid back, 
Dolan went to the sheriff and claimed over $40,000 worth of Tunstall's land and property as payment. Upon hearing this, Tunstall instructed Henry to take all the horses and protect them from Dolan's men. Henry did as he was told. A few days later, Dolan's men charged into Tunstall's area and began taking what they could find. Henry protected the horses as best he could, but as he fought off the advances of Dolan's men across the yard, he watched as his boss and friend Tunstall was shot off his horse through the chest and then shot in the back of the head as he lay helpless on the ground. This event and the events it kicked off became known as the Lincoln County War. After Tunstall was killed, affidavits were sworn against the posse who attacked. McCarthy himself vowed to avenge the death of his friend. Over the next five months, both sides were involved in a series of shootouts, cold-blooded murders and revenge killings. During the war, Henry killed his fair share of the other side. During the war, Henry became known as one of the best shooters in America, seldom missing his target. During the war, Henry had set himself the task of getting revenge for the killing of his friend Tunstall. He managed to track down the two men who had pulled the triggers on Tunstall that day. Men called Frank Baker and William Morton. Henry had captured the two men with his posse with the intention of bringing them to face justice. The men tried to escape and made a run for it. As they did, Henry sat on his horse, placed the belly of his gun across his forearm, brought the barrel into his eyeline and pulled the trigger twice, killing both men as they ran. Two weeks later, Henry and his side spotted the local sheriff and his deputies, who they suspected as having plotted against them. They ambushed them and the sheriff and one of his deputies were killed. In the ambush, Henry was shot in the leg. The following July, as the war raged on, Henry and his side found themselves cornered in a house. They attempted to fight their way out as the house was set on fire. In the confusion of the bullets flying and the smoke rising, McSween, Tunstall's partner, was killed. Without a pause for thought, Henry pointed his gun at the killer and shot him dead. The death of McSween ended the war. Only Henry and three others on his side survived. A few weeks after the war ended, Henry and the other survivors were blamed for the death of a bookkeeper in a town nearby where it was believed they were hiding. 
It appears that the bookkeeper's death was used as an excuse to capture them as there was no real evidence nor sightings of them to support the claim. Henry was captured and brought before the law. It was believed that if they got him to testify for the death of the sheriff during the war, he would give up the other survivors in exchange for his own freedom. The deal basically was, Henry would testify against everyone on his side of the war and he would walk free. According to the arrangement, Henry was to be arrested for show, held in a cell until trial, and then he would be let free as long as he gave everyone else up. His testimony placed one man in jail, but the district attorney refused to set Henry free. He disagreed with the deal that had been made. As the district attorney planned to convict Henry too, Henry once again broke out of jail and set off across the land. Instead of being a free man now, as had been agreed, Henry was still just another outlaw on the run. This time, in order to make a living, he formed his own gang, a group who answered to him and paid him. The gang was mainly made up of Irishmen far from home. He set up in Fort Sumner, New Mexico. Here he became friends with a man called Pat Garrett. Garrett joined Henry and his gang on some of their cattle raids in order to earn a bit extra himself. Unsurprisingly, given morals in the Wild West at the time, as Garrett became friends with Henry and took part in the gang's activities, he was also elected as sheriff. Once he became sheriff, Garrett made it his personal mission to capture the now famous Henry. In Garrett's pursuit of Henry, many a life was lost. Dozens of shootouts took place where many a man on both sides fell. Henry was not one of them. Traps and ambushes were laid to try and capture Henry, and given Garrett's knowledge of his friend, they all worked with relative success, apart from actually capturing him. On December 13, 1880, a $500 bounty was placed on Henry's head for any man who could bring him in, dead or alive. Ten days later, under pressure now as more and more bounty hunters were coming to the area to capture Henry, Garrett set out for one last attempt to capture him. After a long siege where many of Henry's men were killed, Henry himself was finally captured. He was shackled to a train and taken to Las Vegas to await trial. As the train left, it was attacked by a gang who wanted to take Henry with them. Garrett's men managed to fight them off and a plan was made to move Henry to Santa Fe instead, so very few people would know where to look for him. 
he was held on the charge of killing the sheriff during the war, the same sheriff whose death he had given the details on in order to become a free man. After he was captured, a reporter for the Las Vegas Gazette interviewed McCarthy. Noting his relaxed demeanour while facing a charge of murder, McCarthy replied, What's the use of looking on the gloomy side of everything? The laugh is on me this time. He was put on trial and instantly sentenced to death by hanging. Held under iron handcuffs and under constant surveillance by two guards, Henry's time on the run was finally up. His race was run. It is still unclear how it happened, but as Henry sat in the cell, counting the last few minutes of his life, he managed to get a gun off one of the guards and kill them both. Henry took a horse and set off into the wild again. Furious, Garrett now decided that if he was to catch Henry again, he would not be taking him alive. Henry had a unique disadvantage. He had absolutely nowhere else to go and stayed relatively local. He stayed around Fort Sumner for three months. On July 14, 1881, Garrett went to the home of a rancher who he believed was helping Henry. Afraid of the law, the rancher was quick to admit that Henry was staying and working with him. At the time, Henry was out working. When he arrived back, he walked into a house with all the lights off. No candles, no fire, barely any moonlight to see with. Henry dropped the food he was holding, quickly pulled out his gun from his belt and pointed it to the moving shadow in the room. Who's that? he shouted in Spanish, which he was now fluent in. This was the first time Henry chose to talk first rather than shoot and deal with the consequences later. This pause cost him his life as after he shouted, all he heard in response was the sound of the gun that killed him. At the age of 21, Henry lay dying on the floor after being shot in the heart. Over the years, strong rumours have spread across the world that Henry didn't die on this day. The rumours claim that Henry was instead set free on this day by his old friend Garrett. It's hard to know either way. In 1948, a Central Texas man, Ollie P. Roberts, also known as Brushy Bill Roberts, began claiming that he was Henry, and he went before the New Mexico governor, Thomas J. Mabry, seeking a pardon for Henry's life, or his life as he claimed. Mabry dismissed Roberts' claim, and Roberts died shortly afterward. Nevertheless, Hico, Texas, Roberts' town of residence, believed his claim so much that they opened the museum in his honour.
that is not the only thought I will leave you with today. The other is Henry's name. I told you at the start of this story that this story was about a man called Henry McCarthy, and that remains true. But all the people who met Henry in his short 21 years didn't all know him as Henry. Some knew him as William H. Bonney, some as Henry Antrim, and others as Kid Antrim. His most famous name, however, and the one he is remembered by today, is Billy the Kid. The music for this episode was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Dunn. Gorov Mahakut, Slonanish. It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters or grab Sky Broadband Ultra Fast for lightning fast speed. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speed. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September.